So, it's the Edinburgh Fringe 2018. It's been a year since the last Stage Brother episode. Um, sorry about that. I don't really have any excuses. I have booked in to see a bunch of shows um, this summer and have resolved to try to put out some more episodes, partly because I'm trying very hard to finish a book and really need to try to organise my thoughts, and I found that the podcast episodes were a very good way to do that. To that end, um, I need to say thank you to those of you who have listened to the episodes before and anybody who's given me positive feedback. They have been massively appreciated. I hope that I'm going to be able to put out a few episodes this summer. And I hope that they will be, you know, worthy of listening to. I'm feeling a bit rusty. I also feel ill, um, and I'm sorry about the state of my voice. I really should wait till I'm a bit better, but I figured if I didn't do the episode now, then I wouldn't do it at all. So, apologies um, aside, I want to start this episode with a quote from one of the more uh, doom-laden, just, you know, for a change, critical theorists of the uh, late 20th and early 21st centuries, a guy called Paul Virilio who said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. When you invent the plane, you also invent the plane crash. And when you invent electricity, you invent electrocution. Every technology carries its own negativity, which is invented at the same time as technical progress. Welcome to Stage Blather, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 24, Inventing the Shipwreck. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar Now, I've talked about Virilio before, I think, uh, in an episode on terrorism. He's a theorist that is most associated with speed, and he developed what he calls a concept of dromology, based on a Greek word meaning race, and proposing the interrelation of power and speed. So for Virilio, um, power is something that is bound up with the idea of acceleration. In his book, uh, Politics of the Very Worst, he offers a kind of eccentric icon of this uh, idea by looking at the tomb of Tutankhamun, whose effigy holds a whip in one hand and a hook in the other. Virilio observes that the whip was used to accelerate the chariot of war, while the hook was used to slow it down, to pull back the reins. Therefore, pharaohic power, like all power, is at once restraint, break, power and acceleration. End quote. So that's, Virilio's kind of model is that the power resides in those that are able to speed up and to slow down, to control the, the velocity of any given idea, um, or in this case, any given society. And I was trying to think of a, a recent example, and probably one of the most striking that I've come across um, is Naomi Klein in her book, The Shock Doctrine, where she talks about the ways in which opportunists, conservative capitalists, exploited um, the chaos in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. They moved in and they immediately started implementing radical social changes um, that followed their, their conservative agenda. Uh, and in order to increase their own wealth, to increase their own ideology and to exploit the tens of thousands of dispossessed citizens in New Orleans at the time. This, I think, is a very good example of what, it's a very iniquitous example of the ways in which speed is power and vice versa. And I'm starting this episode with a discussion of speed because I saw a few shows yesterday that all, in very different ways, responded to the idea of rapid seismic change, and specifically the aftershocks that can be experienced by those who are subject to the consequences of this change. The fact that the shows that I saw all touched upon this subject is, well, obviously, to one extent, it's conditioned by the fact that I chose them, and I am, as I said, I'm looking for material for the end of the book. Um, I will probably talk about that book in later episodes. Uh, for now, it, 
I imagine suffices that I say that the book is about emergencies, um, and therefore that none of the shows I'm going to see are going to be particularly cheerful, but anybody who's heard the show before will be used to that, I imagine. Um, but as well as, you know, the fact that I chose the shows, there's also, I think it makes sense that fringe shows would be engaging with the idea of rapid change and the, the aftershocks that can be suffered by rapid change, because acceleration is probably, uh, I'll go out on a limb and say, one of the preeminent concerns of the time in which we're living, particularly this year. And I will talk about things like uh, the, uh, the you know, Donald Trump and the Me Too movement um, in this episode. Um, but beyond that, beyond the kind of the recent media um, and social media uh, phenomena that have looked at, at particular changes, there's also, uh, if you look at any reputable data set um, that details things like global resource consumption, human population and expansion, temperature alteration, or anything concerning the physical concerns of this planet, then you will notice in the last half a century or even less that everything goes off the scale. Um, I remember seeing the, the, there was uh, Stephen Emmett's um, it was a kind of a lecture that Katie Mitchell directed at the Royal Court, and he used a lot of graphs which showed things like water consumption. Um, and you just have this kind of bit where the the scale reaches mm, like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and it just immediately goes off the charts. Um, as well as this, of course, there are positive asp um, um, examples of acceleration in our own time period. Everything from medical technology to gender politics have seen profound and positive changes in the last few decades. Um, so acceleration, I think, is important. Well, not I think it's important. Acceleration clearly is important. It's clearly one of the hallmarks of the time period that we're living in. Um, but the increase of speed increases the chance and the severity of accidents, which is where the Virilio quote, this quote from the beginning, is designed to highlight. So just as a car that travels at high speeds poses a greater danger to lives that, can, that might be involved in the accidents that it encounters or creates, so the various ecological, technological, political, social, and economic accelerations of the late 20th and early 21st centuries pose ever greater threats to the world in which we live should the wheels come off, or when the wheels come off. And, you know, you can think about something like the economic collapse of 2007, in which, because money is so... Uh, is computerized and is controlled by computers, is also um, so unstable the effects and consequences of that collapse were phenomenal and they're still being felt. Now, um, I want obviously want, need to move on to the plays themselves, um, but I just wanted to start with a brief conversation about acceleration and velocity um, to try to find a way of bringing the concerns of these three plays together. Now, the first play I saw is called Angry Allen, and it's a play written by Penelope Skinner, performed by Donald Sage Mackay, um, and it's being shown at the Underbelly on Cowgate. Now, the play is a monologue, it takes the form kind of as a, of a thriller. Mackay plays Roger, who's a former corporate um, big shot who's lost his job, and he now works as a menial middle management type in a supermarket. He's divorced. Uh, his mostly alienated son lives with his ex-wife, and uh, Roger's girlfriend, um, who he lives with, has recently discovered feminism through a women's studies course at the local city college. He's presented to us as an affable kind of character, and there is always this kind of slight tension with monologue plays as to who precisely the audience is, um, in this instance, I think it, it kind of it doesn't quite establish that figure. It's, there's a balance between we feel like we are talking to him in a pub. You know, it's a very kind of informal register, but at the same time, it's a very structured and very articulate register, the kind that you would expect, perhaps, in some form of deposition. Now, the play begins as he describes a kind of Google vortex. You know, he clicks on a link, clicks on a link, clicks on a link on his phone, and he 
quite by chance happens upon a series of videos and articles that are written by a men's rights activist called Angry Allen. Um, and Roger gets really into these these articles and videos and starts um, donating money and, and trying to proselytize about them. And as he gets further into the movement, the men's rights movement, his life unravels around him. And the play builds to a, a, towards um, a crescendo, which is um, a conference that he's going to attend, which is held by Alan, uh, for which he's paid a significant amount of money. The play, Angry Alan, is very much theatre as argument, which I don't have a problem with. Um, and I agree, in fact, that the, the position that Skinner puts forward, which is that men's rights activism, so-called, is a poisonous manipulation um, designed to exploit the emasculation felt by men who are outraged that the world isn't bending to their will as they were told that it should. I think that's, a, you know, from the little I know of it, I, that seems to be a very reasonable um, description. But at the same time, I did feel that this was quite a two-dimensional text. There is a tension in Roger between, on the one hand, being highly articulate and capable of rapid response and debate. He's not an idiot. But at the same time, he begins the play apparently empty of individual thought, and he rapidly becomes incapable of conveying anything apart from party-line positions and slogans. That And it, it, everything is kind of, my friend Alan told me, or I've been reading from Alan. It's like the guy doesn't have anything. There's nothing to him. He's a cipher. Um, there are two points in the play. Um, I think where he he voice the significant he, where he voices the opinions of on the one hand his girlfriend and on the other hand a feminist vlogger that he meet, he meets. Um, in the first one, his girlfriend tries to point out that people with the highest paying jobs might not be the happiest, and in the second, he the vlogger that he's talking to suggests that Roger's anger is pointed towards the wrong people. That rather than blame women for the problems that he experiences in his life, he should rather turn on those at the top of the economic spectrum. She refers to them as the one percent. Now. Which, again, both of these seem extremely sensible. The idea that um, he's pursuing an idea, a sense of money, of uh, success, and a masculine form of identity which is defined by an ability to earn a lot of money and to provide for his family, something that he returns to quite a lot. And on the other hand, the, um, the idea that the enemy to which he's being pointed for the situation he finds himself in is wrong, that women are not to blame for the situation, uh, but rather the people who have engineered society so that it is rigged to favour the few rich and to exploit the majority poor. Um, which both, I think, resonate quite strongly, um, and given that this is a play set in the United States, with um, a very old argument that's most famous, I think, still in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, um, a play in which in every man is elevated to the status of a tragic hero because of his struggles against the, the great lie of the American dream, the, the idea that anybody can make it. Of course, not everybody can make it. Many people will not make it. Now... Miller was very careful to argue about this, the elevation of Willie Loman, his protagonist, to the status of a tragic hero. And he, he used that as a way of kind of trying to unpick what he saw as an aristocratic bent in Greek theatre. Well, I mean, it is, uh, where only the high-born may be tragic heroes. And he wanted to democratise the tragic hero and say that anybody can be a tragic hero. The problem is Roger is not a tragic hero in this play, Angry Allen. Um, and... I don't think the play has any interest in making him a tragic hero. As I said, I think he's more of a cipher. He is somebody with whom you do not feel kinship, and you're not supposed to feel kinship. Rather, I talked to a friend of mine who'd seen it, and they said they just sat there with their head in their hands going, no, 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 you're an idiot. That's kind of how you feel. Um, and the final image of the play, which I won't give away because it'd be a spoiler, but the final image of the play does cement this. Roger is a kind of pathetic monument to an outmoded system of thought. And I think this is where the idea of the shipwreck comes in. So uh, Laurie Penny, the journalist, has written a, a series of characteristically wonderful articles over the past year 
um, about the new world that she believes is being made possible through the um, kind of phenomenon like the Me Too movement, where um, a vast, uncountable number of women over the world um, posted experiences of um, sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment um, using the hashtag Me Too. And what that did was kind of energize through collective action a, a sense um, that this kind of behavior was no longer tenable and that women weren't going to take it anymore. And Laurie Penny says um, that men who cannot accept and work within this new world will find themselves expelled from it. This is a position that I, again, completely agree with. And I'll put a link to one of her pieces on the Facebook page. And what Skinner's play explores, I suppose, is the violence that is latent in the aftershocks from this, because nobody ever gives up power willingly. And even people like Roger, who've never had any power, but can be conned into thinking that once upon a time they would have had power, can be dangerous when it is taken from them. So I think the play explores this kind of as an argument. It's a very, I found it quite, um, as I said, a two-dimensional argument, but I don't think that necessarily that that is entirely a bad thing. Um, but I think it, it was quite striking that this was the first thing I saw at the fringe and set up this idea of the um, the shipwreck and what happens for the people that cannot, um, uh, that are too mired in, a, in the previous world to be able to cope with the speed of the change that they face. So this, and moving on now to the second show that I saw yesterday, which was War with Newts, which is performed by Nave Theatre at Summerhall. And I think um, the sound design deserves a mention. It's designed by somebody called Robert Bentall. It was extraordinary. This play is based on a 1936 sci-fi novel by the Czech author Karel Kapek, which I'm mispronouncing, apologize for that. Um, Kapek also, or Chapek possibly, wrote a very influential play called R.U.R., which was a play that popularized the word robot in the English language, if anybody's interested in the European theatre history. Um, so it was a book written in 1936, uh, which is important. I'll come back to that in a moment. The storyline follows the discovery of a new breed of newt on the edge of extinction and their rescue from extinction by a, an opportunist fisherman. Now, these creatures are, are unusually large, they're very intelligent, they have a capacity for mimicry that includes human speech, they're able to use tools and to build things, but they appear, and this is significant, they appear to have no capacity for independent thought. They are essentially treated as, as robots or slaves. And a corporation recognises the potential value of this breed of newt and starts farming them when they are then shipped out as different forms of labour. Now, the show... Um, War with Newt is framed in such a way that the audience members are cast as refugees, and when we enter... We are told that we have managed to escape some deeply troubled land. We must have gone through some traumatic experiences. We are um, subject to a, a brief kind of medical examination, and we're then sat down. Uh, the people that greet us are cast members in role as robots, and it becomes clear that we are on board a ship headed for sanctuary, guided by three holographic figures who live in the sanctuary itself, um, but appear to us only as faces on screens. And to keep us entertained on our voyage, these faces on the screen... Um, download historical scenarios into the bodies of the cast members who then act them out for us. So we're kind of watching this um, strange historical reenactments by robots about the world that we've just escaped from. Now, again, the idea of speed and destruction is paramount here. And the narrative hinges upon the ways in which these newts are able to so quickly pick up human behavioural characteristics. Uh, and, of course, nobody seems to appreciate the danger of this, of if you've got a, a species that are capable of mimicking humans... Uh, where, you know, humans are not necessarily the best things in the world, and if they mimic all of our characteristics, then will, that will prove dangerous. Um, and I'm not giving too much away here, I don't think, because right from the word go, the audience are aware that something has gone terribly wrong, and, of course, the title War with Newts does prefigure a calamity. 
So the show is based, um, as I said, on an 80-year-old text, 1936, which I have not read, but I understand has seen considerable modernization in this piece. Nevertheless, as with many apocalyptic texts, the core message seems to have become more relevant in recent years. We are, after all, a time period that is obsessed with the end of the world, because unlike any other time period in history, we possess a variety of technological capacities to actually bring it about. Um as well as the usual kind of religious uh, fervor that seems to prove a hallmark of most human activity and the kind of weird teleological beliefs that we always have that we're heading towards, heading towards some kind of an end point. Now, the more influence, as I said, with the, the technology aspect, the more influence that we feel ourselves to have over the environments in which we live, the greater the catastrophe that we can produce when we impact upon that environment in a negative fashion. I've already mentioned this through the kind of the increased acceleration of the various, the various forms of um, technology that, that we have increases the kind of accidents or the kind of catastrophes that we can produce. Now, what I kind of had a slight issue with this play was that rather rather than advance a critique of capitalism and the ways in which mindless resource consumption uh, in the service of apparently endless expansion proves ultimately suicidal. What I think we get here is a kind of an unconscious argument that we're not doing capitalism well enough. Because what happens, again, not trying to give away too many spoilers, is that we encounter another species that ends up being better at the things that we are good at than we are. And because one of the things that we're good at is destruction, you can kind of, you know, the, the idea of, of our, well, continued existence becomes problematized. Now, it might be that I'm being unfair, um, in this, because I was thinking about the, the kind of the play through a post-colonial lens, and there are theories in post-colonial studies that any subjugated group will learn the techniques of their oppressors in order to liberate themselves and to turn the tables on their oppressors. If you've got a bunch of people um, holding you down, then you are going to look at the ways in which they are holding you down, and you're going to try and learn those for yourself. Um, and it's possible that this play, War with Newts, is kind of doing that, making the same case for the non-human world. But I couldn't help feeling that, that the depiction of the enemy, which included, uh, you know, the, the newts, uh, that they had colonial projects themselves, and they were capable of political betrayal. Um, I think it, what it ultimately showed was a kind of non-human that was more human than humans. And that, to me, seemed very fatalistic. And what I concluded, which I often conclude, um, kind of despite myself, is that I don't think that that kind of fatalism, which might have been all right in 1936, I don't think we have the time to indulge in it these days. I think that to propose that the thing that comes after humans will be, you know, better, better than us at being destructive, although it might be true, I don't really want to believe in it. So I suppose what happens then is that I'm, in, I'm seeing a show which conflicts with my ideological perspectives. And that is, of course, not a criticism of the show itself, just, just my own personal response. And again, I should say, like all the three shows I'm talking about today, I think that these are really worth seeing. And if you do get the chance um, and have the inclination, do go along and see them. Now, the last show I want to talk about today um, in any detail is Flight, which is also at Summer Hall. Um, Flight is produced by Darkfield Theatre Company, who uh, do pieces that are set in shipping containers, in which the, their website cl uh, claims that they're designed to explore fear and anxiety. And this is set in a shipping container. Um, it's got a very reduced audience, I think there's about 20 people, 
um, you turn up at Summer Hall, um, you go to a shipping container, you're given a seat number and you enter the container, which the interior of which has been designed to look like um, the inside of a passenger jet, and you take your seat. It's actually, it's a very, I think, um, authentic rendering of the inside of a passenger jet, and, and it, need, it needs to be, because part of the thing it's doing is trying to trick you. So you sit down, you buckle yourself in, or I didn't, just as a kind of, you know, a bit of betrayal. Um, there, you put some headphones on, and there is a, a video from an overhead screen in which a series of montages of safety videos are being projected, one after the other, but they, there's kind of jumps between them, which prefigures an idea of um, multiple possible realities, which then becomes very important in the show. Um, the show lasts for about an hour and a half, and it's most of it's in complete darkness. And it's going to be tricky to talk about this, because I don't want to give too much away. But I do want to talk about the show, and my primary reason for doing so has something to do with the idea of options. Now, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this episode, the book that I'm writing at the moment is about emergencies. And one of the key features of an emergency is the reduction of options. In fact, often the responses to an emergency are presented as severely limited, or even you know just one, and arbitrated by a series of practices called emergency protocol, which override and suspend all other common practices. Something awful has happened... Uh, there is a danger that it's going to get worse, more calamity may unfold if we don't do this particular thing. And although this particular thing might be different to what we would ordinarily do, um, and what we would ordinarily agree to do, if we don't do this particular thing, then we are at risk of making it, of making the emergency worse. Um, now, in some cases, the evac like, for example, the evacuation of a burning building, um, emergency protocol can be traced to a laudable objective such as the conservation of life. But in other cases, such as the evacuation of some people from a burning building, and again we can look back to the prioritisation of white Americans in the evacuation of New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, um, or for example the torturing of suspects under the aegis of the war on terror, now these objectives are far more problematic. So emergency protocol is always political, and its political objectives may often be, um, as, I, as I argue, um, quite negative. And something else that I've been arguing in this book is that the foreclosure of options is a kind of foreclosure of the future. You're preventing the possibility of multiple futures by insisting that there must be one. And that this creates a very strange sense of time, where an idealised future in which there is no emergency is held in front of us in order to gain our support for whatever protocol you know might be being offered, which could include things like torture, and has recently included things like torture. Um... But we accept it because we want to get to the you know the future in which there is no further emergency. However, because this has um, it continues to prove such an efficient method of social control, one emergency is very often simply replaced with another. We kind of lurch from one to another, and this is nothing new. Um, it's been you know the, um, as to give one example, British colonial rule in India and Pakistan used the state of emergency as a perpetual uh, way to suspend. Uh, laws in colonized areas because they didn't feel that the subjects that they were colonizing actually deserved or were capable of um, obeying the laws of Britain, even though they used, they used the laws of Britain as a way of um, subjugation. It's just that in our time period, technological apparatuses of communication have increased to such an extent that we all carry them around with us all of the time. And so we, our, our exposure to emergencies is has reached a kind of fever pitch. I don't know who else turns on their phones first thing when they get up in the morning, but I unfortunately have this habit and often look at the news. And so one of the first things I see before I even a chance to wake up properly is whatever's been happening with Trump or North Korea or Brexit. And so this frames my day in a very kind of 
troubled um, and an often quite anxious state. So anyway, th this is kind of part of the, the stuff I'm talking about in the book. And what I quite liked about flight, and um, what was quite unusual about flight, is that rather than, although it was, well, I suppose because it was set in an emergency, it was set, the, the idea of the, the, the show is that there has been some kind of a problem with the plane. I'm not going to give too much away. In fact, the, the show itself is very ambiguous. But there is a sense of unease that pervades, which is very cleverly um, manipulated. Despite this, it is a play that treats with the idea of multiple possible futures and holds those open for as long as you are in the box. Um, now, again, I'm never quite sure how much detail to go into here. I suppose if I'm talking about multiple possible futures and a box and being inside a box, plenty of people listening to this will actually know what that means. Um, now, and that that struck me as very strange to go to the heart of an emergency, of a tangible physical emergency in which actually, you know, if you're in a plane and there's problems going on, you have very little control over what's going to happen next. Um, I was thinking, actually, there was a, a typical story of, of the, the German director Werner Herzog. He was... I believe banned from a particular airline for life because he was on an airplane and um, the, uh, there was turbulence. They thought the plane was going to crash, so they said, brace, brace. And he refused. Um, you know, brace where you put your head between your knees. And there's something about when the plane crashes, that means that your spine gets driven into your brain and it kills you instantly. Um, but he said if he was going to die, he wanted to see how it looked. And, that, you know, it's not much of a choice, but it was the only choice that he had. Um, the plane didn't crash, and they managed to get to ground safely. But when they when they got to ground, he was apparently banned from because he didn't follow protocol. Um, but this this uh, this show, flight, actually treats on a lot more possible outcomes to this. Um, there are people whispering in your ear um, a lot of the time about the ways in which this could go, um, and the many worlds in which this has gone other ways. All at the same time, you're in complete darkness. Although there are sometimes there's slight illumination, and actually, and that the you know they put a I think a motor or something underneath the um, underneath the shipping container, and so the the trickery worked upon me quite a lot. I did find myself at various points um, finding it difficult not to wonder whether I was actually on a plane or whether there were actually people brushing past me in a panic. Um, and now, as I've, I can't talk much more about it, so as I've said, if you are listening to this um, and you have the time, please do go and say it's half an hour long. Um, it's quite cheap. I imagine it will sell out quite quickly because it's got a reduced um, audience, but I think they're showing multiple uh, showings over the course of any given day, so if you get a chance, go and see it. Now, um, typically, I don't actually know how to end this episode. Um, I am going to see more shows over the coming couple of weeks, and I will endeavour to put out more episodes. So I suppose I could propose this as part of a growing blether, but I do want to finish on at least an attempt at summation or something that, that might draw these things together. Now, with flight, the connection to the topic of acceleration and accident is quite literal. We engage as spectators with the dangers of an accelerated technological accident. But for um, Angry Allen and War with Newt, the, the idea of acceleration that I've been dealing with is more on a societal level. How, do, how does acceleration of, in the first case, a kind of a particular idea of gender politics um, and also national politics as well. The Angry Allen's connecting to an idea of masculinity that he sees uh, somehow manifest in the figure of Donald Trump, which is then used to kind of highlight the social tensions in America. And in War with Newts, it's this idea of um, a kind of broader economic philosophy that privileges human life over non-human life and sees all forms of life apart from human life as, uh, well, actually, to be honest, even including human life, as something that we can exploit and consume in our own interests and the dangers of doing that on a global scale and then having it all screw up. 
And I wanted to kind of draw this all together with a, a quote from Slavoj Žižek. Uh, and I, I'm not a fan of Žižek, I have to say. I've, I've mentioned that on the podcast before. Um, I'll never forgive him for suggesting that uh, Hillary Clinton was worse than Donald Trump. And, you know, it's my political beliefs. But as I've said before, I have no intention of being impartial. Um, but the following thing I think is quite well, it's worth considering. This is Zizek. He says, faced with a disaster over which we have no real influence, people will often say stupidly, don't just talk, do something. Perhaps lately we've been doing too much. Maybe it's time to step back and say the right thing. True, we often talk about doing something instead of actually doing it, but sometimes we do things in order to avoid talking and thinking about them. Now, and that's the end, end of the quote from Zizek. I, I can't sort of think of a better example of that, than, or a worse example of that, than Brexit, um, which is obviously the, uh, the kind of the future that we've all been labouring under for the last couple of years now. Um, the uncertain future, but the certain future, and the kind of the dangers inherent in just knee-jerk responses without possibly, without stopping to consider the consequences of your actions. I suspect that I'll probably see a few more shows about this over the course of this fringe and thus... We'll talk about it more on this podcast. For now, thank you for listening. Um, bye. So fly when you're-